So um, this morning, I, I really want to encourage you. Um, we're going to be really heavy in, in the scriptures through this series. And I want to encourage you this morning. I want to take some time. And I, I don't do this a lot. But I, I really want to encourage you to, when you come in on a Sunday morning through this series, to, to bring your Bible. Bring, bring the word of God with you. Um, as we as we go through this series and as we study and as we understand, um, because I, in my opinion, uh, there's no greater form of worship uh, than to, to than to appeal to God's word and to study it and to know God's word. There's no higher form of worship of God than to do that. And so, I want to encourage you: um, if you don't regularly bring it, do that. Make it a habit. Make it a point. Maybe the night before, before you you go to bed, you put you know, your Bible, like, on your table so that when you're walking out, you're like, oh, I got to grab that and grab it, okay? Because we're going to be in it a lot. We're going to be studying it because, I mean, the scriptures are replete with with evidence of who the Holy Spirit is. And this is the source through which we're going to draw our understanding of him. So I want to start out with this quote. J.I. Packer said this, a wise man had said that your Christian, uh, sorry, a wise man had said that your Christian life is like a three-legged stool. Kind of hard to have a two-legged stool, right? You need a three-legged stool, right? I don't know if I, yeah, you can get a, you can have a four-legged stool, I guess. That works too. But he says, um, this is a, a wise man. I don't know if this is J.I. or not, but he says, a wise man had said that your Christian life is like a three-legged stool. The legs are doctrine, which is teaching experience and practice which is obedience and you will not stay upright unless all three are there in recent years many christians have not kept these three together in other words christians are so uh, heavy on doctrine and teaching yet lack any experience with god and there are some out there that are just looking just for continual euphoric experiences with God, but, but never want to use the teaching and the doctrine of the scriptures to test and to bring validity to what they're experiencing, right? And then there's practice, that there's a daily discipline to the Christian life of prayer, of reading, of studying, of performing good works that God has given us to, to walk in, as, as Paul says in, in, in Ephesians, Right, So our, our Christian life is really the stool that we sit on, and it's supported by these three things, doctrine, which is teaching, and experience, and practice. And we must have all of those things to have a life that is rich in Christ. And so I think that's really important to understand as we're going through our time together in this series. You know, our goal and our aim uh, in this series, in this study, is to, is to diligently seek and savor the trueness of the Holy Spirit. And it, and it happens as our understanding of him is enlarged. We get a greater understanding of him, right? Peter said that we are to grow in our knowledge, in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, and in God in general. And, Holy, and the Holy Spirit is, is in every way God, as we'll talk about here in this time. But our love for him should abound. Our worship of him should be hoisted to the heights of praise as we, as we go through this series and as we understand what it is that God is saying and what the Holy Spirit is saying about himself through his word. And so uh, over the last couple of weeks, we took two weeks to kind of uh, bring a, a sort of an introduction to our time together uh, in this series. 
And really what we looked at is this. We, we kind of um, established some boundaries over the last couple of weeks if you were here. And what we call this, we're like, these are like trueness boundaries that we sort of looked at and, and discussed and studied and, and went to the word and, and saw in the word of God. And we looked at the word of God and we saw how God has placed boundaries on himself. I know that's hard to understand, but God has in every way, and the Holy Spirit has in every way, he has put parameters around himself whenever, with regards to the truth. You know, we cannot think of the Holy Spirit in any way we desire. And we cannot make up an image of the Holy Spirit in any way we want. But we are to be guarded and hedged in, and the parameters of our understanding of the Holy Spirit come from his truth. And so we looked at that over the last couple of weeks. We looked at the idea that truth defines the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit willingly defines himself by his own words, He's unable to act in such a way that would violate his word. For it would be a misrepresentation of his own character. We talked about how our words are attached to who we are. When we speak forth words, they represent who we are, what we're thinking, what we're saying. And we can in no way, as God cannot detach himself from his word, we can in no way detach ourselves from our words. There are our words express how we feel, what we think, and who we are. Sometimes we like to take back those words. Sometimes we like to backtrack. Sometimes we have to apologize for those words. Sometimes we have to take back those words, right? Sometimes we have, to, uh, we have to make amends for the words that we speak to people sometimes and the way we, we, we are in our relationships with one another, right? That's the difference between us and God. God never takes back his word, never speaks a false word, but is true and perfect in everything he does and speaks, right? But truth defines the Holy Spirit. We looked at that, and then we looked at how truth informs our understanding, right? Our view and understanding of the Holy Spirit must be subjected to the scrutiny and sufficiency of God's word. There is no other way to get around this. We get in a whole lot of trouble when we do not want to allow our view and understanding of the Holy Spirit to be determined and to be subjected to the scrutiny of God's word. And then finally, we looked at how truth informs our, our experiences, right? The church must strive not to erase the defining lines of truth, but embrace them as they work to judge the validity of our spiritual experiences and our pursuits. This is what the truth does. And I would say that in order to understand this, the church must embrace a return to his word. I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not been in his word, if you are not consistently reading and understanding and studying the word of God, there is tremendous grace in that. But, but I would encourage you to return to his word, return to the truth, because that is where God has shown himself to be. And it is by his word that we are to, in every way, interpret everything that we hear out there, we see and what we experience in our own walk with God, right? So this, the study uh, structure this morning, we're going we're gonna to get into this first part. The first thing we're going to look at is the person of the Holy Spirit. In other words, who is he? What qualifies personhood, right? Do the scriptures ascribe qualities of personhood to the Holy Spirit? What does this demand of us to understand about him? 
If he is a person, how are we to understand him as a person? Right? And then after this, we're going to look at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Why does the Holy Spirit do what he does? And then finally, the, the performance, what he does. And for you guys who love alliterations, yes, those are all Ps. Just, just throwing that out there. Right? Person, purpose, performance. That's easy to understand, easy to memorize. Purpose, sorry, person, purpose, performance. I don't know if I can say that again three times fast. Purpose, purpose, person, performance. Okay, got it. Okay, so that's kind of how we're going to, how this study is going to kind of, the trajectory of this study is going to go, okay? First is this, the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're probably going to have to take a couple weeks on this, um, but we'll see how it, how it goes. It's a little inside joke. Um, a lot of times when I prep a message, I end up really prepping for two weeks because I get to the end, I'm like, I can't do all this in one 40-minute, 30-minute session. So I'm probably going to break this up for you guys. Hopefully, I think that's going to be the best thing to do because... Um, I got a lot here. So uh, first thing we're going to look at is this, guys, the truth claim. What is our truth claim this morning? Our truth claim is this, that the Holy Spirit is not an it. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing. Okay? When we think of the Holy Spirit, it is necessary to understand him as a divine person. A divine person. And now we're going to split this, this session up into those two things. We're going to first look at his personhood. Okay? And then his divinity, okay? And then we're going to continue to look at the qualities of personhood and how we are to understand that in our lives with the Holy Spirit and what the scriptures say about that. But for today, hopefully, maybe not, we're going to get through these two things. That the Holy Spirit is a divine person, okay? He is divine and he is person. He, he uh, possesses personhood and he possesses divinity, Okay, so, so this is how we are to understand this. So my question to you is this morning, I'm going to throw this out to you guys. What makes you a person? Right? I mean, it's, it's a word that we use a lot in, in our vocabulary. But sometimes it might be a little hard to, dis, to, like, to uh, describe, right? Like, what makes you a person? Anybody? Thoughts? Character, okay. Karen says Character. Anything else? Oh, man, I don't have any responses this morning. This is very, this is a tough question. What, yeah, what defines you as a person? What makes up your personhood? Yeah, it's a good question. Okay, so character, it's the same thing, right? Character, yeah. Heart, okay, heart. Or maybe, maybe a better way to, maybe another way to say that would be emotion, right? We have emotions, right? Yeah, okay. Ooh, stumped some people this morning. Dad, children, okay. Hmm, that's an interesting one. Soul, okay, yeah. Huh? I, I don't understand what you're saying. Being, being, okay. Oftentimes we attach adjectives to our idea of personhood, right? Right, so we'll say, you know, I'm a generous person, right? I, I consider myself to be a patient person, 
That, I'm not actually saying that about myself. That's not true. <laughs> you spend five minutes in my house. I can be at times, but. We may say, I'm an emotional person, right? There's adjectives that we, 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 we sort of uh, attach to this idea of, of personhood. And, and, and it's a way in which we kind of can define ourselves, right? Uh, how it is that we look at ourselves, uh, these things that we use to describe ourselves is how we perceive oneself in our, our personhood. So this begs the question, what makes the Holy Spirit a person? What makes the Holy Spirit a person? And I want you to think about this question. He's not a thing. What? Okay, self-existence. Okay. Right? So what, when we went back to our truth claim, what did we say? That the Holy Spirit is not an it or a thing. Right? He is a person. So what is it that we are to understand about the personhood of the Holy Spirit? What is it that, that, that he possesses that makes him a person? Right? So that's what we're going to kind of, kind of dive into today. So the Spirit, right, the Spirit of God, you know, if he's living in you, if he's, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, by faith in Christ, his will, and he performs and accomplishes his, his will in all of his work with this, as we've been talking about, this invigorating enthusiasm and zeal. The Holy Spirit is, is zestful uh, and accomplishes all that he wants to do in your life with this, this, this idea of zestfulness. And he transforms you with this, this idea of, of tireless energy. He's doing these things in you. He's, he's spiritually stimulating you. And he does it with, a, with, a, with an energy that is, um, that is tireless, right? He's teaching us. He's correcting us, right? Uh, he's searching your heart. He's searching my heart. He's evaluating your will. He's evaluating your desires. Uh, he's looking into you and lives in you and brings you discipline, right? He, he causes you to be obedient to what God wants you to do and to be obedient to the commands of Christ, right? He forms righteousness in you, right? Through obedience, he encourages you through the day, day to day, encouraging you as he dwells within you, right? And so with this refreshing vitality, the spirit is masterfully laboring to execute every purpose that the Father has. Every choice that the Father has chooses every sovereign plan and purpose right the spirit with this sense of vitality is laboring to complete it and to bring it to pass he applies all of the benefits that christ has accomplished for the believer with a zestfulness that is irresistible the holy spirit's work and power and ability in you is irresistible the Spirit's work in a believer is administered with determination in you. It is undeniable. And he does this all as a distinct divine person in you. 
That is why last week when we talked about uh, the different things that are being attributed to the Holy Spirit, that is why to diminish the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the ability of the Spirit by teaching that His work is bound to our spiritual methods or, or experiences um, or activations or incantations or, or any of these things that are taught out there is to completely diminish the majesty of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit reigns in you, when He dwells within you, the work He does in you is irresistible. It's undeniable. It's almost like you cannot help it at times. And so last week when we were talking about how we see out there in the larger church, you know, this idea and this practice, and I'm just going to touch on this again for a moment, this idea and this practice of, of activation, like it's not enough for the Holy Spirit to dwell in you as a believer, but he just lies dormant and is unable to do anything in you unless you spiritually activate him. That's just, a, that's just kind of a thing that's kind of taken place over the last four or five years in the church. And, and so it's, it's, it's not that the Holy Spirit uh, can come in and just and willingly sort of do his work in you. It's not that the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to do that. He is really just dependent on what you allow him to do. And you do that through your own spiritual activations. But unfortunately, this practice that sort of infiltrated the church is really comes from a New Age occultism. Because you see this idea of spiritual activations in other forms of spirituality. And there's nothing taught in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit doesn't give us uh, any basis for, uh, for um, believing that this is how he operates in the believer. But this really is New Age occultism that's permeating the church. And so the church is now taking on these, these types of spiritual activations, these spiritual and formulaic incantations. If you say this thing or pray this prayer, um, then, then, then God somehow is mysteriously, his power is unlocked in you, and now you're able to actually live the life that he's called you to live. But this has, this has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. It is simply uh, the church taking spiritual uh, practices from outside, from, from the world, and trying to incorporate them and lay them on the Holy Spirit. And now you even have people selling books that, that teach you how you can do this in your life. And they make money on, on teaching people how they can activate God in their lives. It reminds me of what Peter said that in their greed, they will, they will, they will expose and they will, um, how does he say it? In their greed, uh, they will cause you and deceive you with false words. They will cause to deceive you with false words in their own greed. And so you have uh, this whole sort of genre now of, of conferences and books and, and things that are focused on activating the Holy Spirit, but they claim this is a new teaching and that the church has never heard this before, and, but they're bringing it to us now. And let me just say this, that all we need to know about how the Holy Spirit operates and works in our lives is found in the truth of God's word. We don't need to add new teachings to what God has already given us. And so that's why I'm saying, guys, is like when you see these things out there uh, that you test, that you, say, you go to God's word and say, okay, is this really what God says? 
Is this really how the Holy Spirit works? Is this really how he operates? Or is this just a teaching that's brought by, to me by a man who has devised this on their own? And the reason why they may do this is because they want to prove that they have a higher level of spirituality than you do. And so you must follow them and follow their techniques in order to sort of cultivate a more spiritual life. And so we have to be really careful to understand that everything we understand about the Holy Spirit has got to come through our understanding of his truth and what he has expressed, right? So the Holy Spirit demonstrates all of the necessary markers that are true to personhood. And he does it through the revelation of his self-testimony, which is his word. And this testimony, this word, it labors, it labors in us to interpret the truthfulness of our own experiences. It's really interesting. When you, when, you begin to dive, when you begin to divert from God's word, when I'm trying to understand the Holy Spirit, when you sort of lay the truth aside, the Holy Spirit can be whatever you want. I mean, I've heard people say that the Holy Spirit is like a genie. You know, I've heard people uh, use descriptive language and, 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 and they, will, they will posit their own understanding of the Holy Spirit. And they will say, well, the Holy Spirit is like this to me. Or the Holy Spirit is like that to me. Or, or, or I can breathe in the Holy Spirit. That's another one. I can breathe in the Holy Spirit, right? But there's nothing that tells us or teaches us to breathe in the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit by faith and by faith alone. That is how we receive the Holy Spirit. And so when you do not want to be uh, contained by God's word, what you can do is you can make up your own idea and understanding of the Holy Spirit in any way you want. Because it's all really subjected to your own opinion or your own feeling or your own thoughts, right? So that's why we have to understand that the Holy Spirit is not subject to our opinion of who he is. But he is subject only to the authority of his word. So I can confidently sit here and say, no, the Holy Spirit is, is not like a genie. <laughs> okay? The Holy Spirit is, I don't need to, to breathe in the Holy Spirit. Right? I receive the Holy Spirit by faith. Right? So it's really important to understand these things. The Holy Spirit never describes himself as a form of mystical energy or an abstract force that can be harnessed to accomplish the spiritual purposes of the believer. You know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people that are in uh, the New Age, they'll use these terms, very similar terms that we use, but they'll put different spins on them, and they'll, they'll talk about a life force that lives within you that you have to unlock and that you have to awaken in order for you uh, to be able to live a, a productive and virtuous life, right? But, but the Holy Spirit is not some form of mystical energy that we can somehow harness, right? Or a force that we can somehow use. Think of like Star Wars, right? Like Luke uses the force, right? And he uses it in a way that is very impersonal, right? The Holy the Spirit that, that, that is predicted or that is... Um, described in like the Star Wars movies, right? It's this force that, you know, we can harness to do whatever we want, 
right? And so we have to understand that this is not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is a person who possesses, watch this, personality. Personality. He has distinct qualities and features that comprise personhood. And, and this is so amazing. His personhood, right, makes possible for us a deep, meaningful relationship, right? So the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person, he is personal. And, and because he's personal, we can, we can, uh, we can experience a relationship with him. In these terms, we understand his love for us. We understand the grace that he has afforded us. We understand his mercy. We, we can, uh, we can uh, experience forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. When we, when we sin and we come to God and we confess our sin to God and he forgives us, right? We receive that forgiveness through the applying of the Holy Spirit to us. Right? When we forgive one another, when we sin against each other, right? we, can, we can go to one another and we can, we can ask for forgiveness to, for one another. Uh, and that feeling, of, that feeling of being reconciled to one another is done and applied to us by the Spirit because he is personal and he lives within us. We feel accepted, right? We, we are told in the Bible that we are adopted sons and daughters of God that we are adopted into a family, that we were once outside of God's spiritual family, but now through Christ we are in God's spiritual family. We are adopted into the family of God. How do we understand that acceptance? It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is a personal God, not an ambiguous, abstract, mystical force. Okay? So failure to understand this truth can lead to spiritual deception. As our ignorance, (laughs) our ignorance attributes to him that which is not from him. Whether it be encounters or experiences or, or revelation. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit is depicted as the wind. That doesn't mean he's the wind. But he's depicted in scriptures as wind. He's depicted as a dove. That doesn't mean he's a dove. It means he's depicted as a dove. Why? Because because for us to be able to understand how the spirit in his personhood operates and, and the qualities and features of him, even though he has no body and he is spirit, we have to in some way be able to personalize him. And so when we, uh, when we use things, physical things, things that are, um, that are easy for us to understand, it makes it easy us, easier for us to understand the person and the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit and how he operates. But the Holy Spirit is not these things, right? He is a person. Oftentimes we'll think of him as breath. And even though this Old Testament word, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, can mean breath, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is breath, right? So, so here's another thing that we have to be careful of, is that <clears throat> you, can, you can be taught that you can receive some anointing of the Holy Spirit through breathing, 
right? Through ex- or inhaling and exhaling, you know, in these rhythms or in these patterns. And this is, the, the reason why this is taught is because we, we fail to understand that even though the Holy Spirit is described as breath, he's not breath right? That's just a quality. Uh, that's just something that we can ascribe to him to give us greater understanding of who he is, right? And we'll talk about that in a second, about why he is considered or uh, why he's described as breath. But, but it doesn't mean that we are to, to sit, uh, you know, alone in solitude and go through breathing exercises to experience more power from the Holy Spirit, that's not what we're, what we're told to do. In fact, there's nothing in, in Scripture that really tells us or prescribes that for us as a way to understand and know and experience the Holy Spirit, right? Oftentimes, that is taken from something that's more occult in, in nature, spiritually. But the distinct person of the Holy Spirit can be observed through the Scriptures. This is so cool. He is present in the creation verses, if you look at it. Genesis chapter 1, he's present in the creation verses. And he eagerly beckons Christ to return in the final verses of Revelation. So from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture, we see the person of the Holy Spirit operating. From cover to cover, the Spirit's personhood is on display. And it becomes increasingly more predominant and clearer as the redemptive story of God unfolds. You see this happening as you read through Scripture. So I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 this morning, uh, we're looking at the creation account. Uh, And there's a lot of debate um, about this account. Um, But we are going to read it in a manner that is literal because we believe it is literal. Um, it is not poetic or symbolic, but it is literal in its, in its form of literature, right? So we're going to read Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to start 1, and I'm just going to go to uh, chapter 2. And we're going to see right here at the beginning the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Wow, some really cool language in those two verses. We could probably spend a month just studying those two verses and even longer, probably. But I want to just just point out a couple things of mention here that I think are really important to understand. We see there, right at the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering. The Spirit of God was hovering. So we see the Holy Spirit at the very beginning of creation and at the very beginning of God's revealed word, Right? So this, this really is a cool uh, saying uh, that we see here. This, these terms, these two terms, form and void, right? In the Hebrew, these terms are form would be, without form would be this word tohu. Not tofu, tohu. Uh, I like tofu though. Tofu's good, you know? Fry it up in a pan with a little oil and 
It's pretty good. No, okay, all right. Not tofu, tohu, right? So without form is this, uh, this Hebrew word tohu, and void is this Hebrew word bohu. Now, it's very rare in, in, in Jewish and in, in Hebraic literature to see two words that are used uh, in noun forms this way that rhyme. And so for some people, they think this is more of a poetic sort of literature than it is um, a prose literature. But everything about it really looks to a prose literature more than poetic. But anyway, that's, a, that's another discussion. But these two words, tohu and bohu, are used to describe uh, what, was, what was there when God was creating everything. Tohu and bohu. Um, these two words actually have meaning, and they're not two words stuck together that, that create a different meaning. So in other words... Um, the word, uh, if you were to think of uh, a phrase, helter-skelter, right? Does everybody know what helter-skelter means? When something is helter-skelter, what does it mean? It's all messed up, right? Right? It's just, just, no, it's just chaotic, right? Helter-skelter, right? But does helter mean something? Like, does the word helter mean anything? What? No, it doesn't. Helter doesn't mean anything on its own, right? Skelter, what does skelter mean? I, nothing, right? So those two words, independent of themselves, have no definition, right? But you put those two together, bam presto, bing, bang, boom, you've got a definition. Helter-skelter, I know what you're referring to when you say something is helter-skelter, right? So we are to think of this phrase in this way, tohu and bohu, right? That the earth was without form and void. It was tohu and bohu. Right? And it's this, this idea that, that everything was, was uh, like a desert. It was literally translated desert and wasteland. Desert and wasteland. In other words, it was deserted. There was nothing there. It's, it's not to say that it's full of sand, right? That's not the desert we're talking about. But the idea of desert is this place of desertedness. There's nothing there. It's it's. It's desert, it's wasteland, there's nothing there. This idea of tohu is this form, this idea of empty place. It's, it was just empty, it was confusing, it was formless, there was nothing there. And this word bohu, right, is to be out of order, right, confused, unproductive. Isaiah in, 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 his, in, his, uh, in his prophecy in uh, verse, I think, in chapter 34 uses these same two words, tohu and bohu, and, he, and they translate them confusion and chaos. And this was, this was the way which things were when God was moving in the creation story. Chaos, confusion, formlessness, unproductive, unable to produce anything, right? And so here we see the spirit, right, over this, hovering over the tohu and the bohu, the confusion and the chaos, and the formlessness. And the spirit, God says, my spirit is hovering over it, right? Ruach is the word in Hebrew, ruach, right? We know that word really well, right? But it's this, this idea, the spirit, the ruach of God was, was hovering over all of this formlessness. And, and, and this really speaks to this idea that, that God has a unique ability to contain and to rule and to execute control, right? Even in the midst of the chaos, God was hovering it with, over it with his spirit. And he was, in some sense, controlling it even in its unformness and its formlessness and its chaos. That he was hovering over it for a specific purpose, right? Right? 
And this idea of hovering is sort of like, if you can picture this in your mind, it's like a bird that's hovering over its nest, like a, ch like a hen hovering over its nest. And its chicks are inside, and it's this idea of this, the bird hovering, and the wings are kind of open. Right? And, it's, and it's protecting the nest, and, and it's doing all of this work, and, and the purpose for it is to bring forth life. So if you can understand it in those terms, it is as if God was hovering over this desert wasteland, this formlessness that was producing nothing, and, and his hovering like a, like a hen over its chicks, it is for the express purpose of bringing forth life and order and form. So he's hovering, the Spirit is hovering, creating something from desolation, right? Producing life and substance from unproductive emptiness, erecting form out of disorder, generating cosmos out of chaos, Right? The idea of cosmos is this idea when we look out into the universe and in the cosmos and even in the earth, we see this sense of form and order that it's operating in a particular way. The universe has order to it, right? And so God has, has hovered over everything and created everything with a sense of order and with an operating uh, form uh, that has brought a sense, I would say, um, of peace and order. Um, what's another word for it? Structure, form to it, okay? And so he does all of these things through the power of his spirit, through the power of the personhood of the spirit. So he brings order from chaos. But here's the amazing thing, and it ties into our understanding, I think, of the Holy Spirit with regards to this study is that this word ruach is also can be, can be interpreted or used to, to define uh, the idea of breath. So in other words, when, when God was hovering by his spirit, it was as if he was breathing life into creation. He was breathing life. And, and we see that this idea of breath is to exhale, right? To breathe freely. And watch this, to refresh and to revive, and, and, and isn't that so true how when the Holy Spirit works, he works with a refreshing zestfulness, a reviving of everything that he touches and operates in, right? Even in our own lives, what we're talking about is the enthusiasm of the Spirit to operate in our lives and produce life in us. And he does it with this idea of spirited enthusiasm and zest and zeal for his purposes. And so when we think about him hovering, and, and, and the Spirit of God, when he does this, when he brings form and order from chaos, he does it, how do we know he does it? Through the exhaling of his word, right? As God speaks, it is created. As God speaks and exhales his word, it is created. That's how we, we would see the, the, the Genesis account here of creation. So as he speaks and exhales, right, it is created, it is formed, it is brought to a sense of, of order through that operation. And he does it with this refreshing enthusiasm, taking delight in accomplishing all that the Father has purposed for creation. 
So that's how we are to see this. So that is him in his personhood. I want us to just check out a couple more uh, verses, not as intensely this morning, and then we'll, we'll stop there. And then next time we will get into the godness of the Holy Spirit, right? That he is a person, but he is also God. He is um, divine, right? So Nehemiah, if you want to turn with me to Nehemiah for a moment. Nehemiah was, um, uh, was recorded and was, uh, was um, basically the, the historical account of Nehemiah was uh, the, uh, the record of Israel returning back from captivity um, from Babylon. Uh, and we read here in Nehemiah uh, this, wonderful, uh, this, th- this wonderful sort of description of who the Holy Spirit is. I want us to first start, you don't have to go there, but uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9, 16 through 21. I want to give a survey really quick. So uh, the Israelites come back from uh, Babylon. Um, they are rebuilding the city. The wall is rebuilt. Uh, and then um, at one point, uh, Ezra, the, 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 um, the chief priest, brings the law to the, to the, uh, to the Israelites. And he begins uh, to study. They begin to read God's word. Uh, and they begin to study God's word. And at the beginning, in chapter 8, um, this is what it says. All the people gathered, and this is in Jerusalem, all the people gathered as one man, as a sign of solidarity uh, with one another before God uh, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, and the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who... Um, who, who, who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from the square, facing, uh, the, uh, facing the square from the water gate from early morning until midday. Early morning until midday. We're talking like seven o'clock in the morning till midday. He read the word of God to the people of God. It had been something that in their exile they had they had abandoned, that they had not attended to and appealed to. And so they do this uh, in Nehemiah for the first time in many generations together in Jerusalem. And so they're hearing the word of God. Imagine hearing the word of God for five hours. Oh man, I don't know if we could do that. That'd be tough. Five hours, six hours, whatever. On the second day, what do they do uh, in verse 13? They listen to the words of the law. They were found in the written word of God. And they celebrate a festival, the festival of tabernacles or booths, which is one of those uh, Israelite festivals that we we talked about before. Uh, One of, I think, seven festivals that they did in their calendar year. And then uh, in verse 18, day by day from the first day to the last day during this festival, which lasted a week, they read from the book of the law and they continued to read from the book of the law and they, they continued to feed and feast on the word of God. They continued here in, in chapter 9. Uh, they read from the book of the law a quarter of the day and then they made confession. They finally understood why it was they were, 
led into captivity into Babylon. They finally understood why God had sovereignly used Babylon to take them off into captivity. It was because they did not give heed to the word of God. It was because they rebelled against the word of God. It is because they did not keep God's commandments. And it was for this reason that God had executed judgment on them through the instrument of Babylon and taking them away. And it is when they are brought back to the word of God, they understand how it is that they are to serve God and to love God, and to follow him. And so they begin to recount everything that they had done, everything that their fathers had done in rebellion to God. And then they begin to recount all the great acts of God, if you follow chapter 9 down through, and then the disobedience of God's people, that even in the midst of what God had done for them, they were still what they called stiff-necked, Right? I'm not following that. That's not my God. Stiff-necked, unable to receive God's word, unable to follow it, stiff-necked and rebellious, right? We come down to verse 16. It says this, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks, and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to slavery back to Egypt. But you are a God ready, oh, this is so good, to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I think we sang that song this morning. And did not forsake them. Even when they had made for them themselves a golden calf. And said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. And had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercy did not forsake them. In the way they did, uh, in, in the way did not depart from them. Nor the, uh, from, from them by day. Nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them by the way by which they should go. This is all uh, depicting uh, their, their existence and the way in which they lived in the desert, right? And then he says this, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from them, from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. In other words, God provided everything for them when they could not provide for themselves. He gave them what they needed in their time of need yet they still turn their back on him. But what does he say? You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, to show them who you are. We have to understand the Holy Spirit as a spirit of an agent of goodness, that he shows us the goodness of God by his personhood. He is a person who is described by impeccable goodness. There is no deceit in the spirit. He cannot lie, right? He cannot deceive, but he is perfect in all that he is and all that he speaks. He is the good spirit. And so we see this personhood of God explained there in Nehemiah. Psalm 104.30 says this, it'll be brief. When you send forth your spirit they are created, and you renew the face of the ground, right? God sends forth his spirit 
to renew the ground, the face of the ground. And really in the context here, it is that God provides even for all of the physical needs, right? That when you think about a farmer, right? When he, when he sows into the land and then he reaps the harvest, right? What does God do in response? He renews the ground because the ground puts forth another harvest after that one has been taken. Right? So, so when we till the ground, when we plant the seed, when we bring forth life, God brings forth life and sustenance from the ground. And when that is harvested, uh, is that ground dead? Does that ground ever produce life again? Yeah. Why? Because God renews the face of the ground by the Spirit of God. It is where all life comes from. That is what essentially he's saying. When you bring forth your spirit, everything, life is created even the ground brings forth life year after year after year. And so as you see, the person of the Holy Spirit is very much in view in the Old Testament. And as we go through the scriptures, as we go through from old all the way to the end of the new, we see the person and the predominance of the Holy Spirit in God's purposes for creation and for his people. And so when we are to understand the Holy Spirit, this is how we are to think of him as a person. And next time when we are in the text, when we are in the study, we're going to talk about how he is truly divine. He is truly divine. Uh, He's not subjected. He is not subordinate to the Father, but he is in every way God in his authority, in his power, in his essence, all of the Holy Spirit is God and truly God. And we must see him that way. We must see him as a person and we must see him as divine, as God himself. And so that's where we're going to kind of go next week um, or the next time we're here because I won't be here next week. Um, but um, yeah, I think we're going to stop there. Uh, I think we'll stop there. So let's stand this morning. <clears throat>